Welcome to the Climate Justice Central podcast. Exceeding the planet's ecological limits has led to several environmental crises and the degradation of life's essential ecosystem supports. The crisis at hand is climate change. Hello, thank you for tuning into the Climate Justice Central podcast. Today, two journalists from the Global South in Africa, Botswana and Malawi to be specific, are hosting a climate activist from the Global North in Germany to share insights on the landscape of climate change in our countries. Climate journalism is important for us to talk about from the global south because climate change is the defining issue of our time. We have reached a pivotal moment in deciding our planet's future. The warmer, cooler, or wetter it gets, the more people in the area suffer. I'm your host, Dumelo Kubatao, and in studio today, I have Florence Mwali. On the chair today, we have Kacha Fort, Head of Department for International Politics and North America, also doubles up as Advisor for Climate Policy at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. She will be taking us through her journey and inside working for the foundation. And we have, of course, like Dumi said, Katya in the studio. Hello, Katya. Hello. Katya, can you please tell us more about yourself? Dumi has already had the first part of your introduction covered. Tell us about yourself. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here and be part of that podcast and that amazing project you have. I'm working with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung since 2016, nearly six years. And I started directly with the international climate work and we used to uh, cooperate and we still are with all the offices we have worldwide, which are about 27 offices. And most of them uh, already have a focus on climate impacts and others are now also dipping into that topic, um, also coming from maybe sometimes more an environmental justice perspective and now looking at climate justice. Our approach is also a climate justice approach, which means like those who have caused the least to the climate crisis uh, have to suffer the most. And I think the global north is here in the responsibility to really avoid these these injustices and step into their um, responsibilities. I started six years ago and since then I've uh, been in many different positions. Right now the head of the International Politics Unit. Uh, earlier in 2018, I was in Manila and setting up our climate justice office there. And um, yeah, now I'm in Berlin. Now, many young people, when they get to a certain stage in life, they don't know what career to get into. Is this something that you always had in mind that this is the road I want to take? I think yes. I, I think in the beginning when I started here, I wasn't aware that this might be the road I actually want and I still love that job. So I um, come from or my background as geography. I studied geography or geographical development um, cooperation and I had that idea in mind to work with people, work with uh, grassroots, work with, with projects where people are involved and still I think like my passion lies with climate change and to combat that and really try to have with a lot of people and a lot of solidarity somehow an, an impact. Um, so yeah, I think I ended up where I wanted to be. 
Awesome. So can you take us through some of the successes and challenges that you've encountered in your line of work? Yeah, uh, I think there were both a lot of successes, hopefully, and a lot of challenges. So one success I would see is our um, work on the climate, international climate conferences at the UN level, at the UNFCCC. And we started working with that before my time in 2015 when the COP was held in Paris. And since then, we engaged with an international delegation. And I think... um, those people we brought, they are, remain with us. We, we try to have that kind of capacity building so that people are now able to voice out also or bring up their demands at this global level. And we have a project which I would like to highlight. It's called Not Without Us. It's about gender justice and climate justice. And we are working with them since 2017 um, for the climate conferences. They are different participants from South Africa, from Ecuador, from Indonesia. And those who joined us are still with us. So every year they came to these climate conferences and now they are seen and already for a few years, they are seen as kind of a gender focal point or advisory for climate ju- or for bringing in gender justice into the climate politics. I think this is a success. That's, of course, not only our work as Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, but we were part of that. And challenges are always like after these climate conferences, now always talking about the climate conferences, but coming back from a climate conference and being very demotivated and frustrated because you have the the feeling to fight against windmills and that it's not working out what you're trying. You've spoken about um, some of the programs that uh, you have had, like the Gender Justice and Climate Justice Program. You also have one with the Young African Journalist Accelerator Program, which we are part of. Now, do you do any other similar work in other regions? Because YAJAP is for only journalists based in the southern part of Africa. Yeah, actually, we supported um, a project that is called or an organization that is called Climate Tracker. They are also active in the international level. So they try to engage with young journalists in the UN climate conferences. And we supported while I was in the Philippines in Manila, we supported uh, young journalists from Southeast Asia especially from Manila, but also Indonesia and, or not Manila, Philippines, and also um, Indonesia. And some of them were also joining us or joining Climate Tracker to the climate negotiations. So they had like a lot, like you guys having right now, I had a lot of workshops beforehand and some of them were also writing about this climate conferences. And one story that keeps popping up now is that there was, I think from the Philippines, uh, a participant who wrote a story and published an article and then took the the flight to the conference. I think it was when it was in Bonn in 2017. And when she stepped out of the airplane, her article was all over the world. So she wow. really got famous. I mean, of course, within the bubble, within the climate bubble, but that was impressing for me. With that in mind, what keeps you going to actually pursue these climate stories because you say you went to the COP26 and you came back more fired up because of the conversations that were held there. Yeah, I think COP26 was really um, a COP that made everybody quite angry, I would say, even those who already or who still had their hopes up. So... 
I think what still motivates me, which was part of that question, is to see these local successes and to see like how engaged people are and that we are a lot of people. Also, that was really impressing in Glasgow that so many young, old, very people coming from all over the world um, were joining the climate march on the street, were visible as um, protesters also in the conference, uh, having actions to raise um, awareness of loss and damage and how important it is to finance it and how important it is, especially for global northern countries, to um, phase out of every kind of fossil fuel and uh, also be careful with renewables. So this gives me hope and motivation to proceed with that fight. But of course, come or looking at the outcome and seeing uh, that loss and damage is still a hot air in the room. So it's not yet, uh, there's no finance facility, there's no um, implemented mechanism that would allow countries to raise or to register their losses and damages they have or they foresee. And also knowing that a lot of money is putting into mitigation measures, which is definitely very important. But still, we already see so many climate impacts and climate adaptation. It's such an important thing and it's not yet fully financed and it needs more um, focus on that. You said that the COP26 meeting was quite frustrating in a way. What were you expecting to get out of it? That's a good question. I think it's kind of like self-security or to not getting destroyed afterwards. Usually I, I try to, to have a low um, bar or having not too high expectations. But at the same time, of course, I also had these high expectations to see an outcome for loss and damage for the Santiago um, network. And also to see that there that multilateralism is working and this is also a problem I saw at, at the outcome. We had a lot of bilateral agreements, a methan uh, agreement, some were trying to foster nuclear energy which is super dangerous and uh, seeing those as outcomes in a multilateral process so that that countries only have bilateral multilateral agreements but not on the international level, that hurts also because I hope that, that we have to agree these global problems have to be um, addressed on a global level and every country has to commit to certain climate goals. So with the COP26 expected later this year in Egypt, what is your take on how African countries can actually take advantage of these meetings and make sure that their voices are heard and the deliberations are actually in their favors because the global south is actually suffering the most from the climate change. What's your take on that one? Yeah, uh, you really raised a lot of important things like the global north has to step in, the global south, those countries who, who have the most impact or where the climate uh, crisis has the most impact and who suffer the most. And I think it is very, very important on the one hand, for the civil society in Africa to be present, and I think they try that. And also, even though Egypt is somehow not, <laughs> it's not the best place to have that COP, right? Because of the all the restrictions and being in a in a country which is highly repressive, um, it's 
I think for some it might be also dangerous to speak up, but I really hope that the civil society voice is so loud that it can't be ignored and that they are heard. And I think what is needed is to address especially those countries, the rich countries in the global north, industrialized nation, to really step and to raise their ambition and also raising awareness on those topics like adaptation, like loss and damage, and that that the just transition has to happen, for instance. So I think and I hope that this will be something we will see on the way to the COP27 in Egypt, which is held in November. Um, on the way to that COP, we will have a G7 summit in Germany. We have a G20 summit in Indonesia. And I think those are also important meetings where we already have to put pressure in. And yeah, for social movements in the global north, I hope that they support the African voices in order not to speak on behalf, but let them speak. Now, speaking of just transition, which you just mentioned earlier, what is Germany's strategy for transitioning to clean energy? Just a few days ago, to me, we went to a coal mm-hmm. mine, which is probably one of the biggest I've seen. Not that I've seen much, but from what I saw, there's a lot of damage being done in the area where we were. So what is Germany's strategy right now? Yeah, it's it's really impressive to see and devastating to see those pit holes. And I'm glad that you had the possibility to went there and to get a, a picture of what is happening here in a country that pretends to be a climate savior. I mean, there were some hopes, I think, also with some of the climate movements when the Green Party came in government that things would change. And they have an energy agenda to transit um, more to renewables. They want to use hydrogen energy as part of the transition, but also they are not having a clear no to gas yet. So this Mm -hmm. is still somehow in the game, especially now with the energy crisis and the war in the Ukraine. So also talking about be it larger or more smaller LNG terminals where liquid gas will be shipped in from countries where you think, okay, fracking is not an option. It doesn't matter where. So right now what the government is trying to do, they have this pillar energy transition. So one is, as I mentioned, hydrogen. The other one is um, to invest more in renewables and have the whole electricity at least based on renewables until now i think there there is a strategy also for warming and construction sector but it's not so much in the focus and then of course energy efficiency is one thing they they have in mind but knowing where the resources for renewables are coming and what also the extraction for hydrogen material has an impact on other countries that's again from my understanding quite I don't know like neo-colonial agenda (laughs) they are following so I don't fully agree with them I hope that we come to a point where we talk about degrowth more awesome so speaking of coal energy Botswana signed into a commitment to move away from coal and to clean power during the COP26 however it opted out of committing to not issuing new licenses to mine for coal because the country has more than 200 billion tons of untapped coal resources and the mineral authorities have made it clear to everyone that they intend to exploit these using clean technology. I don't know if there's such a thing as clean coal and adding on to that, do you think that just transition exists for the global south, considering that the nations 
uh, the global south are highly dependent on fossil fuels such as coal to run the economies. This is a huge topic which we really and urgently have to address. Of course, countries that don't have the economic resources to really have a fair and just transition we, we can't, or the, the industrialized countries can't leave them with that. I, I think it's also not only their responsibility. Of course, they have to, I don't know, like uh, clear the way and make it possible that those policies phasing out of coal um, exist. But I still see a huge responsibility of industrialized countries to support that financially. And also not only exporting technology in that feed again their economy, rather on focusing uh, on financial commitment. And uh, I think, as you say, like you've been in Lausitz, you've seen the pitfalls. Mm -hmm. I think before we have any international demands, we really have to clear our backyard and we really mm -hmm. have to clean up that mess we're having and phasing out of fossils as soon as possible. So I think that should be our main priority and then we come to the other things and support them. Critics believe that 25 years of international negotiations have proven to be fruitless, which I can partly agree with because my country, Malawi, has been to all these negotiations, but not much is changing on the ground. We are still that small African country which is facing all these harsh impacts of climate change so much to the extent that we don't know how to prevent it. We don't know how to handle global warming. We don't know how to handle all these tropical storms that keep hitting our country every year and the cost of that is so much that we can't handle it on our own. What do you think are the five most missed opportunities which people have missed during these years of climate change negotiations through COP? I think you need a long breath in order to get through them and I know like once you dive into these techniques and all these nitty-gritty things you need to know and you will learn, um, you maybe have this moment of wow now we achieved something like the final Glasgow agreement they had this term of first they had coal phase out and then I think India stepped in and said no we can't take phase out uh, we have to find a different narrative and I think they came up with phasing down instead of phasing out so mm -hmm. There are some achievements, but being at the outside and, and pushing for more achievement and feels like, okay, that's only a drop on the hot stone, but nothing more. And I think the Paris Agreement, even though a lot of people celebrated it as a good achievement and a successful outcome, still had its lags. It had its gaps where people or where countries don't have to commit. They don't have to. There are no sanctions, for instance. So countries, of course, can say that yeah, we agree to that and we promise to face down, we promise to raise our ambitions and all those empty promises we hear over the last decades. But there's no sanction mechanism. There's nothing that will happen to them if they fail. And if they fail, usually industrialized countries in the global north only see the impacts of that fail later, right? So there are already losses, there are already damages. And as you just said, in Malawi, we have a lot of tropical storms. We have a lot of climate impacts, not only those who are visible, but also the slow, like mm -hmm. having droughts, having increase of sea level rise. Those are things that, that already here. I mean, maybe not, not here, here in Germany, but even here we have climate impacts. And I think there were a lot of things that were just delayed and one major impact is the finance. They are not committing to any kind of climate finance and if that's only a very small amount, 
and with that amount and also being quite inaccessible so I think you need a lot of knowledge already to access those funds that are available these are all barriers to a good climate policy and I think I would put finance 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 and finance <laughs> and taking that urgency as putting it as a priority to really act on the climate impact and to combat that. Mm. Speaking of climate um, policies, has the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, lived up to its mandate, considering that it was initially set up to combat dangerous human interference with the climate system? Yeah, when you see how it's structured, you really have the feeling, okay, this should lead us out of this climate crisis, right? And I think that the UNFCCC Secretariat is really trying their best, but they're only as strong as the countries that are within those negotiations. And there are a lot of blocking parties like Arab states that, of course, base their economy on fossil fuels. Why should they agree to something to phase out, right? So I think there has to be more ambitions and also more incentives. <laughs> These need to be stronger and also... I don't know. I assume that everybody knows how climate impacts will look like and how our world will be looking into or maybe 20 years. Looking into the future, do you think that young people in Germany know what is coming ahead? Do they understand what the country is going through or how it will be maybe in the next five or six years when it comes to the impacts of climate change? Yeah, most of them do see that. And one indicator is that also when 2019 there was a huge movement, we saw so many young ambitious people on the street really being motivated. And I heard from many that they had, after a while, had a kind of a burnout. So they lost their hope also in the government and fighting those fights, you really need to also care for yourself, of course, but also be uh, aware that this will take long. But of course, they also see that we don't have the time. And I think most of or more and more people get aware on the international level, because I think that was missing in the beginning, that you only talk about a generational um, justice, but not an international climate justice and these international solidarity. So also going on the street and fight for countries that are already hit hard by climate impact. And I think this awareness rose in the last years. And there was a lot of education, if you say so. You can see that a lot of them were demotivated also after the election and then seeing that that the government isn't really fulfilling yet their climate targets they had. That reminds me of uh, what we have in Malawi. We have all these young activists who want to be heard, but then even though they make all these demands, when parliamentarians go into parliament, none of their demands are taken on board and they get frustrated and they stop fighting for the good cause. Exactly. Yeah, I think also that, of course, acting on the climate crisis is a good thing to lobby for or a good thing that brings in voters, especially young voters that are aware of the crisis. But we shouldn't treat it as a as a campaigning tool. We should treat it as a political mandatory action. That's something that has to be always on their focus. And that only comes in when it's again election time. Speaking of youth being motivated how would you motivate a youth in Africa that even though whatever comes they should just push through this because this is for a greater cause and 
this is the only planet we have. So if it's destroyed, we don't have a home. I'm also always struggling. Um, can we motivate people by telling them, oh, the world will be destroyed in a few years and we only have that much time left, so we really have to act. I think this is also kind of demotivating because you think it's maybe it's already too late or, or then you come into that burnout effect maybe also. What really gives me hope, and I assume that, that or yeah, I could imagine that this counts for a lot of people to see these international solidarity, to see that so many people are on the streets for the same reason and to fight for the same cause or the same hopes they have to really f fight that climate crisis. And it's also a political crisis. It's a political decision to act against it or not. And um, earlier this day, I, I read an article that shows that a new scientific research was done in, in Potsdam at the Potsdam Institute for Climate mm -hmm. Impact Research. You also visited, I think. Yes, we did. We did. Perfect. Yeah, they just published a study that uh, actually feeding the world uh, would be possible when we have a degrowth approach. Mm. So to stop wasting food, to redistribute, um, to cut emissions, but also to have offsetting emissions, which is also complicated. Don't want to dive in that. But I think there are a lot of good solutions already in the room, maybe only being implemented on local level. But still, I think if we implement it everywhere on local level, then that might work out. Now, Katja, after six years of working with RLS, you have been all over the world. You've worked with young people all over the world. What are your plans for the next couple of years? What do you plan on achieving? Yeah, of course, combat the climate crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing the peace and positive peace. And no, yeah, I, I have all these hopes still in me. I'm quite glad that I'm more an optimistic person. So my hopes, and I think we, we had a good start already, is to bring together those people who are on our side. No, those who are already aware of the crisis and really want to act and are active already. So I think networking and raising our voices together is actually something that I hope to achieve more. And I think we're on a good way with that. Also with you guys having being here and promoting that. And we'll be Definitely. right by your side <laughs> all the way. <laughs> now, coming to a conclusion, when it's all said and done, do you think there'll actually be change in the future? Yes, there must be. There must be. We can't. Yeah. We must see change. There you go, listener. Now to recap on today's episode. The COP26 in Glasgow was criticized as one of the most exclusionary due to the underrepresentation of the global south. This reflects the inequalities between the people and communities most affected by climate change and those who are the most responsible. The COP27 will take place in Africa in November 2022. This will provide an opportunity for the continent to showcase how climate change is already affecting Africa. It will also allow African countries the chance to demand support for sustainable and climate-resilient development as they try to adapt to the impact of climate change. Africa is home to many biodiversity hotspots with animal, bird, and plant species in numerous freshwater or wetland ecological regions. 
We believe this is an important issue for an audience in Southern Africa. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Climate Justice Central podcast. For more engaging stories, go to climatejusticecentral.org.